Thank you for listening to the Sunday School Teaching Ministry of Pastor Luke Pollock at the Home Church of Lodi, California. You can get more information about our church and about starting a relationship with Jesus Christ at www.thehomechurch.net. Our prayer is that this message from God's Word will renew your heart and mind today. Well, I have a little love story this morning before we get to today's chapter. How's the baby doing? And the baby's doing great, by the way, yes. This love story goes all the way back to the days of Moses. Who doesn't like a good love story? About 850 years previous, prior to Jeremiah. You know the story, the, you know at least the first part, I know, and that is Moses, he's running away from Egypt because he killed an Egyptian. And, uh, but the Egyptian was beating a Hebrew slave, and he was, he was uh, doing this to protect the life of that slave. But he runs away because uh, the, Pharaoh's after him, so he runs for fear of his life. He runs to a place called Midian. In Midian, he finds a, uh, a well, and he, he's hot. He's been, he's been, it's a hot day. Uh, he needs something to drink, and he finds this well. And uh, so, you know, as, as this guy would do, this, uh, this man, Moses, he takes off his shirt, and, and uh, you know, Charlton Heston tan uh, chest sticking out there. And uh, he's taking a drink of cool water, and here comes seven ladies, Seven sisters showing up to the well and, you know, I'm sure giggling and uh, flirting a little bit going on. And they're trying to draw water out of the well and they're going very slow. And, and um, then a bunch of stinky shepherds show up. This is a true story, okay? Maybe not the Charlton Heston part, but uh, this is a true story. And, um, and, and, Char- and, and so the, about Charlton Heston, these shepherds show up, and these were not Charlton Heston, these were, these were ugly, stinky, nasty shepherds, they'd been working all day, and they show up at the well, and they need to, to give, uh, get some water. So they push those ladies out of the way and say, get lost, women, it's, uh, we're first. Oh, no. and, um, and so these ladies don't know what to do. And, you know, a typical, uh, typical male chauvinist here. You don't know how to treat a lady. But Moses knew how to treat a lady. The Bible says that Moses really stood up for them with these stinky shepherds. And uh, he told them, get lost. We're getting their water first. He helped them, all these seven sisters, get their water for their animals. And then, uh, then, the, then the shepherds went after that. Well, what do you think happened? They, these seven sisters run home. They go tell their daddy about everything that happened about this Egyptian that helped them out at the well. Daddy invites Moses over for dinner. Surprise, surprise, huh? A good dad is always looking for good husbands for his daughters. He has seven of them after all. So, and as I mentioned, surprise, surprise, one of those daughters marries Moses. Didn't see that coming, did you? One thing leads to another. Now, this is amazing how this all took place. The, ma- the man's name was Jethro. His daughter's name was Zipporah. Moses married Zipporah. The reason I bring up this love story and this marriage here is because it leads to the uniting of two families. Later, when Moses was leading the people out of Egypt, Jethro, his father-in-law, helped him w- with some leadership skills out in the wilderness. So Jethro was kind of uh, was united with Moses. 
the descendants of Jethro actually join Joshua. So think about this now. The descendants of Jethro join Joshua as they enter the promised land. They're in the wilderness with with Moses and and God's people. So these are Gentile people joining with the Jews and going into the promised land. Jethro was in a tribal family group known as the Kenites. We know that from Judges chapter 1. So the group that Jethro was in prior to him was a Kenite. These Kenites, again, were Gentiles. They had aligned themselves now with, uh, with Moses, but not only with Moses and God's people, but really they aligned themselves with their God, Jehovah God. They were pagan idol worshipers, and now they have said, your God is our God, and we are with you. So these Gentile people are now Jehovah believers. Now, fast forward about 600 years, and now we're in the time of the kings, okay? Hang with me here. Jehu, if you've ever heard of Jehu, he's that wild chariot driver who God used to just a wild maniac of a person. But God used that wild maniac of a person to really clean up Israel. Israel was entrenched in Baal worship. And so God uses Jehu to rid the, the land of the prophets of Baal, thousands of them. Jehu jumps in his chariot and he is on his way to go kill these Baal, these prophets of Baal. There's a story that unfolds that he grabs the hand of somebody on his way in his chariot. He grabs the hand of this man and pulls him into the chariot with him. And this man joins with him in the chariot. The man's name is Jonadab. Jonadab. Jonadab climbs into Jehu's chariots and they go take care of business with all these prophets of Baal. So Jonadab was a warrior and a man zealous for righteousness. Jonadab was a Kenite. He comes from the line of Jethro. He's also a sold-out believer. He feels that God, Jehovah God, has called he and his family to live with a higher-than-average standard, even though they're Gentile people who join themselves and align themselves with the Jehovah God. But he knows that God has called him and his family to have a higher standard than all of these people, even in Israel, that are living in a, what we would maybe say, a crooked and perverse nation. To shine as a light in a crooked and perverse nation. So, he believes that his family should really go back to the wilderness days of Moses, really. And when they worshiped God simply, they lived in tents, they didn't live in houses. They just had a focus on the Lord. They weren't focused on anything here in this world. Their, Their primary focus was on God. No building houses, just living in tents. No owning land. No farming any land. And one unique one is no drinking wine. And really, I mean, if you had a if you had a theme song for the for the Kenites and for the for Jonadab, uh, putting this thing out there, it would be uh, this world is not my home. Jonadab's father, his name was Rechab. So this group of Nomads now, Jonadab has said, here's what we're going to do as a family. This this group now is known as the Rechabites, named after his father. So, what does this have to do with Jeremiah? I'm glad you asked. (laughs) Now, now, what we're about to see is that this amazing family group called the Rechabites, 
uh, it takes front stage here in scripture after all of these years. These years down from Jethro all the way down and now Jonadab 200 years before this time of Jeremiah. So if, for now 200 years since Jonadab came on the scene and he said, my family, we are gonna be different. We're gonna be different in this world. Uh, but since then, the, the world around them had uh, returned to Baal worship and all their idol worshiping ways. And now we're in Jerusalem and we're under a Baal worshiping king and God's about to send judgment. And that's where Jeremiah comes in and he's gonna have a message for all these people. That's what we've been talking about for all of these weeks. Jeremiah chapter 35 and verse one, here we go. The word which came unto Jeremiah from the Lord in the days of Jehoiakim, the son of Josiah, king of Judah, saying, now real quick here, so we're actually going back in time now from the previous few chapters. Remember we were already kinda at a place where it was a, Judah was about to fall completely into the hands of Babylon and be done with, no more kings there. But now we're going back in time, and that's what Jeremiah does sometimes. We kind of hit, we're going all over the place. But this time marker says it's at the time of Jehoiakim, when he was king. Babylon had not yet fully decimated Jerusalem. This is right after Daniel would have already been hauled off and some of those, but it's before the first siege in Jerusalem. In the middle of all this, God asked Jeremiah to do something very unusual. Here we go, verse 2. God tells Jeremiah, Go unto the house of the Rechabites, and speak unto them, and bring them into the house of the Lord, into one of the chambers, and give them wine to drink. So, God wants Jeremiah go to this well-known family, this nomadic family, Interesting, they're in a house, and I'll, refer, I'll talk about that in just a minute. But th this well-known nomadic family, and, and invite them over to the temple for the evening. And when you invite them over to the temple in one of those little side rooms, I want you to lay out some wine for them to drink, God says. I wonder what Jeremiah was thinking right about now when God told him this. Everyone knew the Rechabites do not drink wine. That is well known in the community. These are the, these are the crazy people. That they, they're already kind of just a little strange, but for sure they're not gonna drink wine. But Jeremiah had learned not to talk back to God. And just obey. Verse three. Then I took Jeazaniah, the son of Jeremiah, the son of Habazaniah, and his brethren, and all his sons, and the whole house of the Rechabites, and I brought them into the house of the Lord, into the chamber of the sons of Hanan, the son of Igdalia, a man of God, which was by the chamber of the princes, which was above the chamber of Messiah, the son of Shalom, the keeper of the door. And I set before the sons of the house of the Rechabites pots full of wine and cups. And I said unto them, drink ye wine. All right, so the temple had areas for priests' housing. So one of the rooms, one of those rooms there was set up for a little evening get-together here. It's kind of funny scene in my mind. You have about 12 maybe of these, these guys coming in, these Rechabites. It's, a, it's, a son, it's a one of the men and his brother and then their sons is kind of what it says here. So you have maybe, maybe around 12 or so coming in. So in my mind's eye, I see these nomadic, hippie-looking, <laughs> backwoods, wide-eyed group of guys coming into the temple uh, wondering why they're invited for this evening here by the prophet. 
Jeremiah welcomes them. Hey, guys, how you doing? And they're all just kind of looking around, and he walks them in. They walk into this room with the table set up, and it's, the table's just full of wine. It's a cocktail party. They're, they're thinking, oh, no, how, how did we get ourselves into this? Why do we accept this invitation? It's funny to me because, you know, we have made the personal decision not to drink alcohol. And over time, I've been in a couple situations where I feel like these guys. I feel like a fish out of water, you know. And um, my, my wife and I are the oddballs in the group. But a quick clarification here. God is not tempting these people. God is not tempting them. James chapter 1 says that God never tempts a man to sin. God may test a person, but he never tempts them. Here's the point. He's not setting up the Rechabites for failure. He's setting them up for success. He's not trying to get them to sin. He's revealing their inner strength to a watching world. And that's why God will put us to test sometimes. He'll, he wants to reveal some things to us and to a watching world. God knows, already knows, that these people will not do this. They will not take a drink. And therefore, he's using this lesson in this moment about strong, principled people. That's what this is all about. And so we know that the Rechabites certainly passed the test, and boy, were they, they reveal that inner strength that they had. Verse 6, but they said, we will drink no wine. For Jonadab, the son of Rechab, our father, commanded us, saying, Ye shall drink no wine, neither ye nor your sons forever. Neither shall ye build house, nor sow seed, nor plant vineyard, nor have any. But all your days ye shall dwell in tents, that ye may live many days in the land where ye be strangers. Thus have we obeyed the voice of Jonadab, the son of Rechab, our father, in all that he hath charged us, to drink no wine all our days, we, our wives, our sons, nor our daughters, nor to build houses for us to dwell in, neither have we vineyard, nor field, nor seed, but we have dwelt in tents and have obeyed and done according to all that Jonadab our father commanded us. But it came to pass when Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came up into the land that we said, Come, let us go to Jerusalem for fear of the army of the Chaldeans and for fear of the army of the Syrians. So we dwell at Jerusalem. In other words, that's why we're here in Jerusalem. In a nutshell now, let me just encapsulate this. They say to Jeremiah, thank you for the invitation, Jeremiah, and uh, thank you for this offer of this delicious-looking wine, but we're not going to do it. We're not going to drink it. We're going to do what our forefather, Jonadab, has commanded, and we're going to stay true to our convictions. And just so that it's clear, the only reason, they said to him here, the only reason that we're living in Jerusalem right now, that we're not out in our tents and we're in a house basically here inside the city walls is because the enemy is out there and uh, they could wipe us out. And so this shows, real quick, I want all of us to see this because I think it's important. This shows that they were not unreasonable in their high standards. This was a high standard, but it was, they were not unreasonable. There was room for exceptions if necessary. Some people are so unreasonable with their standards that they won't make an exception even if it is truly necessary. But drinking wine wasn't necessary. <laughs> 
And so that's what the issue is here. Now, let's talk about wine issue for just a minute. That, this is not the main issue in this passage. The issue is looking at their strength, their obedience to, the, to their father. But I, I think we should talk about it. And wine, you know, it's not a controversial subject at all, so this should be fun, right? <laughs> I just want to start out, I am not on a campaign against alcohol. I'm really not, wine or alcohol. I, I, there are good Christians who have dif- different standards than me. I, I get that. However, we cannot ignore the massive amount of damage that alcohol has done to our world. You, we cannot ignore that. Um, and, and how it's ripped individuals, families, and children to shreds. Um, and it ha- continues to happen. And if you sit and talk with some of the folks that we sit and talk with around here, you have to agree with that. So the idea, this idea here of these uh, recabites of a higher standard is not a bad thing to talk about. It's actually a wonderful uh, concept. This is not a long study on alcohol, okay? Pastor Tim has talked more in depth than I have, but, and, I, and I'm not gonna get into everything. I'm not gonna get into why someone would want to drink. Is our motive pure as, uh, as people? The testimony that drinking sends to our children, to our extended family, to our friends, and to the world that's watching. The risk of alcohol abuse, uh, which is very, very obvious, and scripture is very clear about. We also have a little booklet in the lobby that might be helpful for, for this too. It gives a little more information. But I want to talk about wine from the perspective of this passage in Jeremiah here. I think there at least it raises two questions about just wine itself. Number one, was this the same wine as today's wine? Is this really a cocktail party in the house of God? Is God really setting this up? Is God really having uh, the same wine as we'd have today in his house here? At least, that, this makes me question this. Number two, why is the Rechabite conviction here not to drink at all commended by God? So we're gonna, just real quick, let me talk about those two things. First question, was this the same wine as today's wine? Many scholars have studied this and looked in historical documents and all of this, and they show without a doubt that what we call wine today was not the same as the wine of the Old Testament and New Testament at all. Wine then was heavily mixed or diluted the Bible talks about mixed wine. It's, it's diluted. It's usually three to one conservatively, usually more than that. Three parts of water to one part wine, usually at least four, probably even more. I'm doing conservative here. Sometimes, I, as I was reading, they even boiled it, and it turned into a paste, and they could store this paste in wine skins and then later add water, and that would be called wine as well. When they would do that, it would literally take out all the alcoholic content, so you have no alcohol whatsoever but it's still called wine in the Bible. So you, have, you don't know which one we're dealing with when we read a pr- biblical passage. If they did just dilute the wine, this means alcohol content was about 2% at the most. Today's average alcohol content, I looked up this week, the average in wine is 12%. Most popular wines right now are Cabernet, which is 13.5% or over, or Merlot, which is 35 to 14.5%. In around 700 AD, go, if you go down the line, they learned this new method of distilling alcohol, distilling liquor, which increased the alco- alcoholic content tremendously. This was, that was not even known back in the Bible days. So the alcoholic content would have already been less. So the distilled wine of today would probably, actually what we're talking about here of today, the wine of today, in my opinion, when you look at all this, I think it more 
qualifies for what the Bible calls strong drink. Strong drink. There's a difference there. Which strong drink is always condemned in Scripture? By the way, I did a little reading on wine and why they would dilute it with water, because what would be the point of that? Wouldn't it ruin it? <laughs> Here are four, con- four reasons, real quick, that they would dilute wine. One is to conserve the supply. They did not have an unlimited supply of grapes <laughs> like we would today. Here, uh, they, they needed to, uh, to make sure they kept it going. For f- another thing is for flavor. People say, what, are you kidding me? Seems to be worse if you add water to it. Studies actually show that diluting two types of drinks with water help the taste. Wine and coffee it removes that un- the uncomfortable effects so that you can more enjoy the taste. Then, then the third thing is to prevent drunkenness. The, the goal was not for them to get drunk, but to not get drunk. Uh, go figure. And then lastly, as an antiseptic. It was difficult back then to get clean water, and so you would add a little bit of alcohol to help clean the water. Living in the day that we live in with all the options we have for clean drinking water and antiseptics and all that, I I just personally do not see the need for me and my family to drink the wine of today. Second question, why is this conviction that the Rechabites had to not drink commended by God? Well, ultimately the main issue again here in Jeremiah 35 is about people who saw the blessing in obeying their father. That's what we're focused in on. But it's interesting that God uses wine as the object of this. So I think there is a secondary thing at play here. Anyone who has a desire to obey God's word will agree. Anybody who wants to obey God's word will agree. We should never be drunk. Everyone agrees with that, right? So that's something we all need to make a firm commitment to. I will never be drunk. But also, according to the Bible, there are certain groups of people who should really avoid wine altogether. The priests while serving in the tabernacle, anyone taking the Nazarite vow, kings, leaders of Israel, Isaiah chapter 5, pastors, deacons. Why should all of these leaders and influencers uh, just really avoid wine altogether? Proverbs 23 and 31, it's obviously that it says that even a little could pervert a clear-minded decision-making process. And so any decision makers, any leaders or people who desire a special time of closeness with God, like the Nazarite vow, need to go above and beyond. Need to go above and beyond. So you can see why God would then applaud the Rechabites for being true to this high family standard that they have set. And we should applaud them too. Good job, Rechabites. Good job. And anybody else who would make a stand like this or or whatever, we should not put them down, we should applaud that, and who's, anybody who's courageous enough to build any strong, reasonable guidelines to help them follow the Lord. That's a good thing. Really quick, helpful, some helpful de- definitions that I think are just helpful. We've talked about them before, but I'm gonna put them up here for you. Number one, a principle. When we talk about a principle, a principle is a Bible truth to live by. So the Bible truth that we know for sure is that I will not get drunk. And as of the Rechabites, Jonadab, he would say, that is for sure, we are not ever going, this, I am never going to get drunk. Second thing is a conviction. So a conviction then would be a personal belief that I take based on that Bible principle. So in that way, you're saying, again, I'll never be drunk. So the, the principle is, do not get drunk. The conviction that I have taken in my heart is, I'll never do that. That's my conviction. And then lastly is a standard. And that then is a guideline that I put in my own life to help me keep that conviction. And your 
and so I say with this, therefore I will not even drink alcohol. That's one way I'm gonna keep from never ever even getting drunk. I'll never even get close to it because I won't even drink it. So you're gonna have different standards. I'm gonna have different standards. You have personal standards for your family. I have some for my family. In some areas, you're gonna have higher standards. And in some areas, I'm gonna have higher standards. We don't, I don't look down on you. You don't look down on me for our standards. We all agree on principles and we all should take these convictions and wise Christians, but as, and as we grow in grace, let me just make this very clear, we all should be developing some standards, everybody. Wise Christians typically make standards in the areas of things like our words, the things we say, our entertainment choices, music, clothing, alcohol, guy-girl relationships, etc., etc. things of those nature. You're gonna have yours I'm going to have mine, but we're trying to reach what God wants us to reach. Parents, listen, just like Jonadab, our standards are extremely important. The things that we set, because those munchkins are watching everything, and they see what we're taking in, what we're allowing, and all of that. The Rechabites are rare, rare. Even in Scripture, they're rare. They're up there with the greatest examples in the Bible of human parents passing on values to their children. Jonadab did a great job of passing these things along. He did. Good job, Jonadab. But let me be quick to say this real quick. This is not just a testament to Jonadab. This is a testament to his successors, to his descendants. The generations following remained faithful and they didn't rebel. And each new generation had to make a decision as to whether or not they would embrace the wise values of the previous generation. We all have to do that. And at least for 200 years, this family group has stayed strong in these things that Jonadab said. Man, isn't that the prayer of every parent and grandparent in this room? That Lord, the things that we set right now, the things that are important to us, the things that we're gonna set would be uh, would be carried on from generation to generation to generation, and Lord, use that. Okay, obedience to the Father was the key thing here that God was pointing to in all this, and it goes deeper, even much, much deeper than the wine issue itself. Verse 12, then came the word of the Lord unto Jeremiah, saying, Thus saith the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, Go and tell the men of Judah and the inhabitants of Jerusalem, Will ye not receive instruction to hearken to my words, saith the Lord? The words of Jonadab, the son of Rechab, that he commanded his sons not to drink wine, are performed. For unto this day they drink none, but obey their father's commandment. Notwithstanding, I have spoken unto you, rising early and speaking, but ye hearken not unto me. I have sent also unto you all my servants, the prophets, rising up early and sending them, saying, Return ye now, every man from his evil way, and amend your doings, and go not after other gods to serve them. And ye shall dwell in the land which I have given to you and your fathers. But ye have not inclined your ear, nor hearkened unto me. Because the sons of Jonadab, the sons of Rechab, have performed the commandment of their father which he commanded them, but this people hath not hearkened unto me. Therefore, thus saith the Lord God of hosts, the God of Israel, Behold, I will bring upon Judah and upon all the inhabitants of Jerusalem all the evil that I have pronounced against them, because I have spoken unto them, but they have not heard. And I have called unto them, but they have not answered. 
So God's logic here is pretty easy to follow. He uses the children of Jonadab, these Rechabites, as a, as a, as a message to his people, as a message of contrast. Look at you people in contrast to the Rechabites. My children, look at the Rechabite children. They have followed the word of their father. For 200 years they've been doing this. And even when the prophet comes and puts the wine right in front of them, and the prophet does this, they still won't, they still won't budge. And even after they've already moved out of the, their tents and into the thing, you would think, oh, well, we've already compromised a little. Let's just compromise again. No, that's not their attitude. This is not necessary. We don't need to do this. These people were strong, and God's saying, look at them. Look at them, people. And yet you will not obey me as your heavenly father. These Rechabites will obey an earthly father, but you will not obey a heavenly father. I was merciful to send preachers and prophets to help you repent and turn to God, but instead you just fell every te- to temptation that came along. That's why I have to do what I've said I've had to do. I'm gonna have to send judgment. You know, it reminds me this little logic here of God using them as an as a object lesson. Reminds me of the things that, that make us scratch our heads today. How is it that children raised in a completely dysfunctional and even abusive home will end up serving the Lord and being champions for Christ while often a child raised in a good Christian home will rebel? And we scratch our heads and we want to say, kids, look at this person. They're obeying this person uh, and yet you won't obey somebody who loves you and has given you the word of God. It, it breaks the heart. If you ever feel that way, you know how God feels. You know how God feels. It's confusing, it's heartbreaking, and it hurts. Verse 18, And Jeremiah said unto the house of the Rechabites, Thus saith the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, Because you have obeyed the commandments of Jonadab your father, and kept all his precepts, and done according unto all that he hath commanded you, therefore, thus saith the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, Jonadab the son of Rechab shall not want a man to stand before me forever. So the Rechabites, they don't leave the temple (laughs) empty-handed. It's kind of a weird moment for them. They're just kind of stunned, not sure what's going on. And then they leave with a blessing. A God-sized blessing is pronounced on Jonadab here from Jeremiah and his descendants. The blessing seems to mean that his descendants would continue to serve the Lord and probably meaning even in temple service as the people who would take care of temple items and, and all the different things that would happen in temple. They would do that when the people returned back into the land and even in, in the future kingdom uh, of God. In fact, we do see Rechabite working with Nehemiah. In, in one of the chapters of Nehemiah, when they came back to build the walls, there's one little portion there that talks about one of the men building the wall is a Rechabite. So they're still going. Interestingly, there have been nomadic people groups in the Middle East as as late as the 1900s, just 100 years ago, who claimed to be descendants of the Rechabites. Supposedly, there's even some people in China who, who say they, uh, they're Jewish people who are, or excuse me, uh, descendants of, of the Rechabites. Interesting. But what a great blessing comes on those who remain strong in their convictions. What a great blessing that God is giving to somebody who remains strong in their convictions to honor and serve the Lord. God sees that. God sees that. That's what we're learning here. This is a great passage of scripture on many levels. And I'm just going to 
run off a few thoughts here for you, quick observations on the subject of family. I mean, we could go, we could look at this from so many different angles. But as family people, people who have families, parents, grandparents, and others, I think this will be encouraging. By the way, remember as part of Bible reading, the, the moment of observation. That's, one of, that's how we read the Bible and how we study Scripture. We stop and just really observe every nugget, every, a, a Scripture passage from every angle. And there are great nuggets to be found by just observing every angle of a passage. And that's what this is kind of born of. I, I came up with a whole list of things just by reading it over and over and over and over again and looking at it from every angle. There's seven things here, there's more, but these are seven things about family legacy that I want to share. So the Rechabite family lego, legacy of observations. Here we go. Number one, the, Re, the Re, Rechabite legacy began with one person who honored the biblical path in his own heart and life. Let's just, let's just say it like it is. It's, it only takes one person. It takes just one person in a family, one dad, one dad to stand up, one mom to stand up and have a vision for the family and say, this is what we're gonna do. This is what we're gonna do. It started with one man, Jonadab. Number two, the Rechabite legacy launched because a strong leader created standards for himself and for his family. Jonadab put thought and care into the standards based on his convictions, based on those principles. He said, here's what we are gonna do, and he's, he, he took it into himself as well. He's not saying, you do this, and I'm gonna do this. Uh, do as I say and not as I do. That's not what kind of person he was. He did it himself. And then he, he thought long and hard and created those standards, and that's up to you and I to create those standards. Number three, the Rechabite legacy was established because a strong leader made the standards known to the next generation. And I don't want to skip this step. Think about it. A good family vision requires many, 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 many hundreds throughout the years of meaningful conversations with our children about why we do what we do as a family so, we're, so people can embrace the vision. It's just over and over and over again. It's letting them know and making it known. And number four, the Rechabite legacy continued because the successors were humble and wise enough to embrace it. Without the next generation embracing it, this Rechabite story does not happen. We don't have this. Much credit to me, in my opinion, goes to the successors who could have rebelled, did their own thing. And if, if you're young this morning in this room, this is your challenge to pick up the baton. People have laid the groundwork. People have, have laid the foundation for you. And it would be absolutely horrible for you to turn your back on all of that, Amen. to turn your back on the Jonadab of your family and to go some, some different way. Take what's right, take what's good from what they've given to you. There may be slight changes here and there, but, but remember, you need to pick up the baton and be reasonable and make those same convictions and those same standards. Then the Rechabite legacy endured because the family was reasonable about their standards. They were living in houses in the city for a temporary time, so we, again, we don't look, overlook that detail. These were reasonable, balanced standards that helped them reach what God wanted them to reach. And then the Rechabite legacy was strong because they encouraged each other to withstand the pressure to compromise. Notice it was a bunch of them. Like I said, it was couple of dads and their sons, maybe 12, I don't know. But the power of legacy 
is in numbers. The more you have, the more it helps build each other up. He, Proverbs 13, verse 20 says, He that walketh with wise men shall be wise, but a companion of fools shall be destroyed. If you have wise people around you, you're going to be better off, you're going to make better decisions, and you won't be destroyed. And then lastly, the Rechabite legacy was blessed by God. God was happy with them. God was happy with this. And that should mean something right there to us. I'll tell you what. The Rechabite family still to this day, thousands of years later, has a good name. 2,500 years later, we're still talking about them, and they have a good name. And a good name is rather to be chosen than great riches. Many rich families have come and gone, and we don't know their names, and they're... And we don't care about them. But we're still talking about the Rechabites today. And lastly, the key lesson for everybody here, whether you're a family person or you're just by yourself living in a home, whatever it may be, our Father is, this is the lesson here, our Father is looking for uncompromising obedience in a world that constantly compromises. He's looking for these people who would just say, no, even though all the temptations might be laid in front of me, I have made this my goal, and I will not compromise. I will not compromise. That's what the Rechabites are an example of. They obeyed their father. We need to obey our father. Lord, we love you. We thank you. We hope you enjoyed listening to the preaching and teaching from God's Word today. You can get more information about our church and about starting a relationship with Jesus Christ at www.thehomechurch.net. From all of us here at The Home Church in Lodi, California, Thank you for joining us.